Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What we think we know. Black Wall Street. Myth or reality? I'm Clark Kent, and in our first season of Reclaimed and Rewritten, I'll be exploring the myths and realities of Tulsa and the 1921 race riots that decimated the thriving Black community known as Deep Greenwood. The Black banks were looted for their cash, cash those white people put towards their generational wealth. The Black banks were never reimbursed by insurance. I grew up in Oklahoma, but I didn't learn about the Tulsa race massacre until I was an adult. This blows my mind. At the same time, I'm not surprised. In today's dollars, the losses from residential homes, cash, personal belongings, and other assets will total to over $200 million. You have to believe that something is truly magnificent for you to do everything in your power to destroy it. Forgetting is not an option. When we have that idea of a utopia, we think about an ideal place perfect place for people, and in this case, for Black people. Was Tulsa really a utopia for Black people? This is the 100-year remembrance. Black Wall Street was a phenomenal area, not long out of slavery, of extremely successful and extraordinary people that lived there. And based on racism, white supremacy, Jim and Jane Crow laws, it caused them to flourish and build their own community. We can all strive for objectivity, which we should all the time. You want to tell the truth. You want to tell a story that allows for other voices to be heard. The aim of Reclaimed and Rewritten is to find and tell the whole truth of our complicated histories, leaving no stone unturned. Some truths will be difficult to hear, and others will bring great pride and joy. In episode one, I'll be looking at the early years of Tulsa and how the famed Deep Greenwood community came to be. I think that we need to wrestle with facts, and it's important to present them. In 1921, events would unfold in a thriving town in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the south of the USA, that would become synonymous with the worst of what white supremacy is capable of. But before we delve into why and how the events of May 1921 occurred, I spoke with journalist Scott Ellsworth, author of Death in a Promised Land, a comprehensive history of the Tulsa race massacre, about the beginnings of Tulsa and how the town came to be. The city was built on oil. So in the year 1900, Tulsa was a dusty Muscogee Creek Indian and cowboy town with unpaved streets, a couple of Western storefronts, you know, less than a thousand people living there, not much going on. In 1905, the richest small oil field in the world is discovered across the river from Tulsa. 
and the petroleum age is beginning, and, and that's going to be the new fuel. We're leaving coal behind, and we're going to oil. And Tulsa just booms. By 1921, people called it the magic city, as in, now you don't see it, now you do. Did Black Tulsans partake in this boom? The major industry was the oil industry, although African Americans were barred from working in it. So we know that Tulsa is a newly booming city. But how does the Black community factor into this growth? And how did they arrive here? Dr. Gerilyn Uhlenberg grew up in Tulsa and is the author of A Lynched Black Wall Street. She explains the emergence of the Black community in Tulsa. First and foremost, I think it's critical to go back in history just a little bit to look at Native Americans. Many have heard of the Trail of Tears, which really is the excavation of Native Americans or Indians being displaced from the East and then moved to the West. As the Trail of Tears took place, many have heard thousands of lives were lost. What most people do not realize is that there were Black enslaved people with the Native Americans that made the trip. They helped make it possible. They were able to do the necessary things to help those that did survive. And so when they entered into the state of Oklahoma, there were many African-Americans that were a part of that movement. As a result, and as treaties were signed, African-Americans were freed from enslavement and they were able to uh, receive aspects of land and participate on the Native American uh, reservations and be a part. So essentially, Black people were fleeing slavery and sustained persecution. Yes. What underlines all of this is lynching, the Jim and Jane Crow laws of the South, Blacks escaping for safety, trying to find peace and solace. And so as a result, we see over 50 towns that were developed in the state of Oklahoma as these movements came in, Black people advocating for themselves, managing their own communities, their own towns in a place that would give them solace. I call it Black nationalism. Someone else might just say they simply wanted to care for themselves, manage their communities, and not be under the thumb of whiteness, white supremacy, and racism. This is the 100-year remembrance. So when I think about remembrance, it also includes celebration as well as lament. Black Wall Street was a phenomenal area not long out of slavery, of extremely successful and extraordinary people uh, that lived there. And based on racism, white supremacy, uh, Jim and Jane Crow laws, et cetera, it caused them to flourish and build their own community. The Jim Crow laws were basically laws that enforced racial segregation in the southern states of the USA. This included separate water fountains, restrooms, restaurants, schools, and more. The laws were enforced until 1965. So whilst the Jim Crow laws were created to separate what were considered separate races, there was an unintended side effect of legislation. It enabled the Black residents of Deep Greenwood and Tulsa to create their own hub of peace and safety. But what did that community look like? 
Scott paints a picture. In 1921, the African-American community in Tulsa was a vibrant, healthy community, very active. You know, there were 10,000 blacks in Tulsa out of a population of 100,000. And there were two movie theaters. One sat 1,000, one sat 750, 35 restaurants, 30 grocery stores and meat markets. There were dry cleaners and photography studios. More than a dozen physicians and surgeons had their practice in Tulsa. There were black dentists, there were black lawyers, on and on. There were two African-American schools, more than a dozen churches, an African-American hospital, a library branch, a, a post office. So this is a community where a lot is going on and, and it's prospering as Tulsa itself is prospering as well, too. Was there a Black working class who worked in these businesses? Amongst those African-American entrepreneurs, there were a relatively small number, maybe a couple dozen families or so, who are really doing quite well. They live in nice, modern, one- and two-story, modern wood homes. Some of them have automobiles and chandeliers and pianos and, and all of that. They're doing well. And then there's a larger group probably of 200 families who have smaller businesses, maybe a, a dressmaking business or a tailor shop or a, a little mom and pop cafe, and uh, they're doing okay. And they also serve an exclusively African-American clientele. They don't have to deal with whites basically largely at all. We often hear about Black people in those times having to work as maids and butlers for rich white people. Was this the case in Deep Greenwood, or was the community completely sealed off? Greenwood itself was created by the vast majority of citizens, you know, we're talking 90% or so, who are men and women who work in service jobs in the white community, as dishwashers, as cooks, as maids, as childcare workers, as ditch diggers, as janitors, as common laborers. And because there was a lot of money in Tulsa, the wages were good. And because there was a lot of need for people like this, because you had a lot of white millionaires who would hire all these workers, there was very, very high employment, especially for African-American women. So you've got these essentially working class families, but both parents are working or oftentimes they work in the white community five days a week. At the end of the week, they come home with a decent paycheck and they spend it at black stores and at black businesses. And they are the engine, the economic engine that's creating this Greenwood district. And they do so because of segregation, because they don't want to be mistreated by white clerks and white stores downtown. You know, a healthy dose of fear of white law enforcement officers, you know, just to avoid incidents. So that's really what builds Greenwood. And while the great merchants are very impressive, and they, they need to be studied, as do the other businessmen. What's gotten forgotten in this narrative is that most people in Greenwood lived in very simple wooden homes without plumbing, indoor plumbing, without electricity, but they had steady jobs.
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. So were there any communities at the time that were similar to Deep Greenwood, not just in like Oklahoma, but maybe across the the United States? Yes, there were. The one that I know best would be in Durham, North Carolina. You know, in, in all honesty, Durham was probably more the true Black Wall Street of America at the time. Durham was a really a, a post-Civil War town that had its own boom, had two booms. The first was with tobacco. That's connected to the uh, Duke family, who later creates Duke University. But it's also the mass production of cigarettes and whatnot. Durham plays a huge role in that. It also became a big textile mill town. But there were jobs for African-Americans in both the tobacco factories and the textile mills in Durham in the late 19th and early 20th century. And that allowed for Durham's primary Black community, which was known as Haiti, named after Haiti, to flourish. But Durham had two black banks, the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company, which was the largest black-owned business in the world at the time, and selling burial insurance at very reasonable rates. Uh, Sharecroppers could pay a penny a month or something to make sure that the burial expenses were covered, things like that. But it grew massive. They had agents all over the country. And in fact, North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company was so successful that when they decided to build a brand new office building, I think in the 20s, the president of the company had a white architect secretly measure the height of the tallest white-owned building in town to make sure that the North Carolina Mutual Building wasn't taller because that would have been an affront racially. So there was there was good money that was happening there. And there were other communities as well, too. Atlanta, certainly. Harlem, you know, eventually Chicago as well. Dr. Geraldine Eulenberg has a different perspective on Deep Greenwood's relative success. She elaborates further. To my knowledge, Greenwood was the most successful and original Black business district in the state. So by the time we get to the early 1900s, which is when Greenwood begins to develop, there's a massive oil development happening in Tulsa. This expands and explodes, but African-Americans are not a part of it. And as a result, because African-Americans were ostracized, they began to build their own city. 
because of racism and because of the limitations, unless they did domestic work or work directly for white people within the area, they'd had no access to anything in the city of Tulsa. As a result, Greenwood becomes a place where they develop their schools, their libraries, uh, their entertainment, their restaurants. They have doctors, lawyers, dentists. And so the way that it developed and the magnitude, I don't think that there's any other city within the United States that had this. People were coming from all over the United States because it had such a large name and it was attracting people for the benefit of prosperity and community. So this traditional communalism aspect where people began to unite, where they were coming together, they knew that embracing, loving, supporting one another was going to be their survival. And the undergirding of that were the churches. I love that you mentioned those churches being kind of like almost the backbone of some of this growth and some of these movements. As I was reading your book, I really, when I eventually would get to sit down and talk to you like this, I wanted to get into Black churches as a collective and how they've played pivotal roles in the states where progressive movements are concerned. So my question would be to you, like, what do you think of the contrast that exists with how white churches have used faith instead of, well, used faith to undermine progressive movements? In order to answer that, Karkisha, we have to go all the way back to early history and how religion and church has been a foundation here in the United States. When we think about Europeans coming over to the U.S., basically taking through this idea of manifest destiny, saying that this land is ours. Native Americans, you don't matter. We're going to take this land. And of course, I'm paraphrasing and moving through to say they're going to dominate and expand. But they also used enslaved people from Africa to make this happen. The reason why I go all the way back to slavery is that it's critical to show that the people that enslaved African-Americans from 1619 to 1865 and beyond, they called themselves Christians. I don't know what idea of Christianity would allow people to murder and beat and lynch and rape our people, but this is what we had. So that's the first foundation to look at. Christianity and religion has been used to ostracize and to... Uh, kill people, if you will, in ways that are just simply unacceptable. When we progress forward and look at how religion and the church has functioned over time, let me begin with how African-Americans have used faith and religion. It has been the entire substance of resistance against this abuse, but it has also been a place of solace where Blacks could come together and sing and praise and worship and be renewed. They danced all night after picking cotton in order to be able to have another day. When I look around today, I don't see anywhere near as many Black communities that look like Deep Greenwood. I asked Scott Ellsworth what happens to them and why they no longer exist. Many of these districts, of course, were destroyed after World War II, 
through redlining, through urban renewal or urban removal, through freeway construction, and also just through desegregation. So when white merchants in the 50s and the 60s started to open their doors to black customers, those customers all often found a larger variety of goods. They often found cheaper prices. And, you know, for families on a budget, you have to do what you have to do and no longer supported smaller mom-and-pop Black-owned stores. Just to do some follow-up on the previous terminology that you brought up while speaking, um, can you define redlining and urban removal for our non-USA audience? Redlining refers to a practice by white banks in the United States where they will only give loans to homeowners and business owners in certain areas and literally draw a red lines across a city map. And what happened is that most African-American communities fell outside the areas or were beyond the red line where banks were willing to make home loans and business loans. And as a result of that, African-Americans weren't able to have access to capital, to move ahead, to progress in the American society, and particularly in the American economy as the economy changed. So that was a, you know, a huge factor in the decline in these African-American, historic, segregated African-American business districts. Urban removal is a term that, that's a play on, on the term urban renewal. So what happened is, you know, In the United States during the 1930s, during the Great Depression, there were no houses built, very little housing built during World War II and whatnot. So at the end of the war, there was this great housing crisis in America. You had a lot of slums, a lot of tenements going down. And there was a sense that, not for entirely nefarious reasons, that what we need to do is we need to bulldoze these falling down unsafe housing commission, you know, conditions, build new housing and and whatnot. And that's how we're going to revitalize our communities. But what happened oftentimes in African-American communities is there was often no rebuilding and certainly no rebuilding that was uh, anywhere near of the quality of the homes that had existed before. It would have been cheaper to help people refurbish their homes, renew their homes, get new roofs and all that. That didn't happen Instead, bulldozers came, and after they wiped out the the actual physical structures, people left. So it was known as urban renewal. In Tulsa, there is an area that's in Greenwood today, although it wasn't prior to 1921, what's referred to as the Steps of Nowhere. And what it is, there's a large hill. There are no houses. It's just grass on this hill, except you can see the remnants of sidewalks and steps leading to houses. And this is where a community had existed. It had been white prior to the massacre, but after the massacre had become African-American and then was just bulldozed and removed. And it's really a metaphor for how this has happened. One other thing that happened in Tulsa is that when the freeway system was created in the United States in the years after World War II, they plowed an eight-lane freeway right through the second block of the renewed Greenwood Business District. The district was already on shaky grounds economically, and that just killed businesses that were simply never, ever able to get back on their feet. And it also created what one uh, former minister of mine referred to as a Berlin Wall in Tulsa, this gigantic freeway cut off 
the vast majority of the black community from the white community on the South side where all of this growth and business was happening. So what do you think is missing from the common stories told about Deep Greenwood and the Tulsa massacre? Because, you know, people tend to just mention the black Wall Street aspect and then that swallows up everything else. There's a lot that goes into getting to the Tulsa race massacre. Part of it has to do with the fact that Tulsa was this boom town, this oil boom town that money was just pouring in. Part of it had to do with the fact that it was also a very lawless community. People would become millionaires overnight and blow it all the next day. So you had a lot of crime. You know, and there had been a history of you know, so-called vigilante justice, which is really, you know, mass crime by, uh, by whites that happened in the city. In her book, Dr. Uhlenberg talks about white violence and lynching as one of its many tools used to terrorize and control the Black population. I wanted to ask you about whiteness and how it uses lynching, right? To continue with the religious allegory, do you think that lynching is one of the ways that whiteness kind of passes down its judgment, so to speak? Lynching was more than just a judgment for a one-time situation. It was a way of being in a culture that lasted for well over 100 years in terms of documentation that we have. And what I mean by that is lynching became normalized in the culture, meaning that people did lynching for various reasons. They might gather together uh, as a picnic, take pictures, create postcards, give out uh, trinkets from bones or burned flesh, I know this sounds terrible, but the practice was something that normalized. And here's how this happens. The amount of time that it's done in a culture, the inclusiveness of all of those that are involved, as I mentioned, not just white people, but Italians and Polish and uh, Irish, all the other people that joined in this process to say that it was okay. It was also taught to the children Children at a young age played a game that was lynching, but they also were taken to those tragic lynch events. They were sometimes asked to light the fire up under the hanging body. They were around the necks of their fathers, participating as if, as if this is some joyous celebration. And this happened on an ongoing basis. So when we think about normalization and becoming part of culture from the time that you're a little bitty child all the way up to adulthood. So it's pervasive and relentless and no one can escape it, not even innocent children. When I think about the evil that undergirds this practice entirely, It was really just the white or so-called white race, again, practicing white supremacy and hatred because if they felt someone needed to be lynched, that's what happened without a court of law, without defense. Whether we look at um, 1919, for example, just a couple of years before 1921 and the lynched Black Wall Street 
We see Red Summer, where African-Americans are being killed in many, many states across the country. When you look at this history, you see a couple of practices that continue to happen over and over again. One, many, many Black men were accused of raping white women. But in so many instances, that was really never true. It was simply the excuse that was used, but it took them directly to jail. Now, the contrast to that is, as you and I know, African-American women have been raped unlimited since slavery. But no one and no law ever protected Black women from being lynched or being uh, cared for. In other words, if these white women were so important, what about Black women? Yeah, it's so true and devastating. Would you call the Tulsa massacre like a mass lynching event? I would say that it was a massive lynching event. And here's why. Because the lynching of Black Wall Street was not just one person, but it was an entire business and residential community, meaning all that they had designed, all that they had developed, everything that sustained them, including their churches, was burned to the ground. And that is a lynching in totality as opposed to individualized. Seeing these Black Tulsans not just surviving, but thriving must have enraged these surrounding white communities, particularly as it was their own laws that caused this success. They didn't want African-American people to have this kind of success. They did not want them to prosper as they invaded each home, as they vandalized, as they took their fine china and uh, you know furniture out of the home and then burned it. There were statements made, they should not live like this. They have things better than we do. There were some very wealthy Black people that lived in Tulsa. And because of the oil boom, it had caused so many people to come in and the city just continued to grow and expand. But it all came down in a two-day event based on racism. So we know that there had always been ongoing aggression from the white community towards the black community. But what was the trigger that set off this particular brutal and devastating chain of events? Dick Rowland. An African-American shoe shiner by the name of Dick Rowland walked into an elevator in a downtown Tulsa office building, the Drexel building. In episode two, I'll be looking into the story of Dick Rowland and the chain of events that led up to the explosive riots that have come to define Deep Greenwood. I'll also be joining the dots globally to find out how the themes of Deep Greenwood have played out across the Atlantic in the UK. I'll be talking with journalist Paula Akpan about moments in UK history that mirror the events that happened in Deep Greenwood. Reclaimed and Rewritten is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You can also follow Galdem on all social media platforms at Galdemzine, G-A-L-D-E-M-Z-I-N-E. Thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.